We're going to read Romans 8, 28 to 30 this evening. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word for us, his people today. Now, a couple weeks ago, I preached on basically this same section, but I focused on verses 28 and 29. And verse 28 gives us that great promise that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. And then verse 29 gives us that great hope that God is making us more and more into the image, of, image and likeness of his son. God is working in us so that we bear a family resemblance to him, our heavenly father. And then verse 30 follows up on those two verses by showing some different steps in the process of our salvation. Predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. So tonight we'll look at each of those four steps in turn. And as we do this, we should remember that Paul is giving us these steps in a certain order, but he's not saying this is the whole process of salvation laid out step by step. You know, if you look at maps on a computer or on your phone, you can either be way zoomed out and see the huge big picture, or you can get really, really down into the turn-by-turn details. And in this text, Paul is somewhere in between those two. He's showing us a number of the steps of the process of salvation, but not absolutely everything. So we're getting a good picture of what the general trajectory of salvation looks like, but there is more to be said, but we won't say it all tonight. Before we get to the four steps in verse 30 that I want to talk about, we need to talk about foreknowledge a little bit. Verse 29 says that those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, some church traditions look at texts like this and they say that God's foreknowledge isn't so much God, well, they separate foreknowledge and predestination. And they say foreknowledge and predestination ultimately depend on people's own choices. In that view, foreknowledge means that God, at a certain point in eternity, looked ahead saw what particular people would choose in terms of believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus, and then in some way, God confirmed their choice. So God in eternity looked at Mr. Romans and said, Mr. Romans is going to believe in me. I'm going to confirm that choice. Ultimately, in this view, foreknowledge is basically just God observing what people choose. It'd be a lot like me saying, oh, look, someone came in the church door. It's just a statement of fact, what someone else has done. I didn't make them come in. I didn't influence them to come in. They just came. There is a strength to that view that it really emphasizes the need for Christian discipleship, the need to respond to what God does, but that view doesn't get the biblical text here or the whole story of the Bible quite right. Now, to have this whole discussion, we'd have to work through all kinds of passages, but I just want to make a couple points tonight. 
First, the view that for, a view of foreknowledge that says God just confirms people's choices doesn't really square with the Bible's teaching that we're dead in our sins. The Bible doesn't say that we're a little bit injured. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins. In earlier parts of Romans, Romans talks a lot about how we're in bondage to evil. We're told that death and sin reign over us. We're told that we belong to the kingdom of death. By ourselves, human beings will not choose God. Apart from God's prior work, there is nobody, nobody on this planet who would turn away from sin and turn toward God. Jesus is not just a helpful guide who comes and finds us and tells us, hey, that looks like the best, best path. Jesus is a spiritual paramedic who comes to us when we are dead, sticks a spiritual defibrillator on us, and brings us back to life. That's the storyline of a lot of the Bible. And that's, that picture actually fits pretty well with the word that Paul uses here for foreknow. That word can sometimes mean just no data ahead of time, but it has more of a sense of knowing a person. It even has some sense sometimes of caring for a person. It's more like saying, yeah, I know that guy. He's my cousin. We grew up together. Then it is like saying, yes, I know that Timothy Christian Schools is right across the street. This foreknowledge is a personal, caring kind of knowing. It's not just some sort of abstract data. So when the Bible says that God foreknew us, it means that God looked ahead and cared for his people personally before time began. So then foreknowledge and predestination actually end up having pretty similar meanings. We can distinguish them in some ways because the Bible gives us the different words, but they both point in that same direction. God loved us before time began. God knew and cared for us before time began. God chose to bring us to life before time began. And that leads us to predestination, the first step that Paul mentions in verse 30. And I'm not going to get into all the details of how that works tonight, in part because it's hard for us to understand the mysteries of God. But I want to give us a big picture, an image of what predestination means for us as believers. And as you can see up on the screen, the actual Greek word there for predestination is prohoriso. Prohoriso. The first part of that word, pro, gives a sense of direction toward moving toward something. And it's not a coincidence that the second part of that word, horiso, sounds a lot like the English word for horizon. Pro-horiso, horizon. And horizon, the horizon is the point when you look as far out as you can and you see where the sky and the earth seem to come together. That's the horizon. That point way out in the distance, as far out as you can see, that's the horizon. So the word pro-hariso, you could say it means something like toward the horizon. Toward the horizon. Predestination means that our destination is preset. God has looked ahead and he has said where we are going way off in the future. God has planned a glorious destination for his people. 
He's determined that we're going to be made like Christ, and he is working to make that happen. God didn't just look ahead and see the direction that people would go. God set his people's course toward him. God is the one steering the ship. God is the one who guarantees that we will get to safe harbor. If you've ever seen drawings of old sailing ships or been on one of those, they usually have this huge wooden wheel to steer the ship. And that wheel is connected in various ways to the rudder, but you stand on deck, you turn the wheel, the ship goes that direction. And I've read that sailors in the old days sometimes would tie the wheel in place. If a big storm was coming up, if the wind was going crazy, if the waves were beating on the ship, the sailors would tie the wheel in place so that no matter what happened to them, no matter what winds came, the rudder would keep them pointed in the direction they wanted to go. No matter what happened in the storm, no matter if the man at the wheel could hold on or not, the ship's rudder was going to stay pointed toward the direction they had set for the ship. When we believers hit hard times in life, we can trust that God has tied our wheel in place. Predestination means that God has set the course that we will take and he will bring us home. God has looked ahead to the horizon beyond what we can see and he has determined that our lives will end in glory. That's the basic meaning of predestination. In Jesus, God has tied himself to us forever. No matter what storms of life beat on us, no matter what happens, Jesus is with us. No matter how bad things get, no matter how rough the world looks, no matter what, God has claimed us as his people and God will keep us safe. That doesn't mean we have nothing to do in the meantime but it does assure us that because God has set our course, we do belong to him, and he will bring us to safe harbor. So in predestination, God sets the course of his people for glory. And verse 30 tells us that those who God predestined, he also called. After predestination comes calling. And there's two types of calling we can talk about here. The first one is probably the one we think of right off, but I think Paul is actually talking about something a little deeper than that here. So first, there's the obvious meaning of calling. God calls people in the sense that he invites us to follow him. God extends an invitation for all people to follow Jesus. The invitation has gone out and it continues to go out to the world, come and follow Jesus. We experience this external call in a variety of ways, but most clearly through reading the scriptures and hearing the word of God preached to us. Through the Bible, God calls all people to follow him. Now, obviously, some people respond to that call and many don't. This external call seems like an invitation to a party. It seems like the sort of thing that you can take it or leave it. You can go or not go. But the deeper meaning of calling, and the one that I think Paul is referring to here, is an effective internal call. A call can mean just an invitation. Hey, you want to come over to my house? You can take it or leave it, no problem. Or a call can mean more like a summons. A call can mean a compulsion to appear before somebody. 
And often when someone is summoned, there's some teeth with that. There might be some people who bring the summons who not only say you need to come, but they're going to make sure that you get there. And when God calls his people, he summons us in this effective way. Those whom God calls will come. Those whom God calls will come. Now, in one way, this doesn't sound that great. It sounds like God is coercing people into following him, like he sends some soldiers to break down the door and drag us before his throne. But that picture forgets this image the Bible gives us that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins. There is no merely external call that would make us able to get up and follow God. If we're going to follow God, we need God not just to call our ears, but we need God to come and change our hearts. God works graciously and tirelessly in us for our good, even when we try to resist his gracious, overwhelming, irresistible love. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, talks about when he was close to becoming a Christian, and he spent the first few decades of his life not a Christian. But when he was close to becoming a Christian, he spent a long time, I mean months and months, fighting against God. He felt the grace and truth of Christ pressing on him, and he pushed back with all his might. For months, every time his mind wandered, it would land on this point that God was calling him to come. And finally, after much resistance, Lewis gave in. And in his words, one night in his college rooms, he finally admitted that God was God, and he knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, as he said, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Now, Lewis was a little bit of an extreme case at that point, but all of us on our own would not respond to God unless God chased us down. And even when people try to run away from God, God comes after his people over and over and over again with his grace. God has set our destination, and he intends to make sure that his people get there. And those whom God summoned, those who he called, he also justified. And justified literally means make righteous. When someone is justified, they are declared not guilty. When Romans tells us that God has justified us, it's saying that God has moved us from one status to another. We who were guilty of sin have been declared not guilty. We who were guilty before God have now been declared legally righteous and blameless before God. I've talked a couple times in this series about a courtroom metaphor for our salvation. We stand before God in the divine courtroom. We're guilty. God could rightfully pass that verdict on us. But instead, God takes our punishment on himself, and he declares us not guilty. Now, that's a powerful image for our salvation. It's one that a lot of people have found helpful. But it's one that we in our culture, our time today, have a hard time really feeling. Most people in most places, in most times around the world, have gone to God with this sense that they have done wrong. 
Most people in history have approached God or their gods kind of like an accused person approaching God, approaching a judge, approaching someone higher than them who could pass judgment on them. But today our default is to put ourselves in the, God, in, in the judge's place and put God in the place of the accused. Most of us by default think that we're okay. And if we're going to believe in God, he'd better be ready to show himself to us. He'd better be ready to prove that he exists. And he'd better be ready to give us a good argument for why he allows all the evil and all the trouble that happens in our world and in our lives. And at the end of the day, we might choose to believe in God. We might say that makes sense. You've justified yourself. Okay, we'll go along with this. But our automatic assumption is that God needs to justify himself before us, not that we need to be justified before God. We sort of automatically, in the cultural waters we swim in, think that we have the right to call God on the carpet before us and demand that he explain himself. Many people in our context no longer have any real heart sense of sin, Maybe they feel alienated, maybe they feel kind of lost, maybe they feel alone in a dark world, but they don't necessarily feel sinful. They don't necessarily feel like they've really done anything wrong, per se. And those cultural waters flow into our church, they flow into our lives, and if we really look at our heart sense, a lot of us probably don't really, really feel like we need to be justified before God. So one of the struggles we face as Christians in this time and place is thinking about analogies, images, pictures, stories that help us understand our need for God. But another thing that we need to be doing as believers is soaking ourselves in the biblical story so that we see things from the biblical perspective, not just the perspective of the culture around us. Our culture tells a lot of stories. Some of them pull some elements of the biblical story in, but they don't really fit. The real story of the Bible shows us as terribly broken people, tremendously in need of God. And that is the story that we need to tell each other. That's the story we need to hear because it is the only true story. And the only way that we can grow in our appreciation of that story, the only way we can really come to understand and to appropriate it is through listening to it through God's Word. And of course, along with that, we have to depend on God's Spirit working in us. We have to be in prayer. We have to be intentional. Now, there's obviously a whole lot more that could be said about justification. It's a huge topic. We could go on about it for a long time. But for tonight, we'll leave it at this. We need to be made right. And God does make us right. God is committed to the reality that he will bring us to live with him forever. The only way we can possibly live with God is if he fixes all our brokenness, if he forgives all our sins, if he makes us right and makes us righteous. And so that is what God does for his people. And that brings us to our fourth and final point for tonight, glorification. Those who God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
glory. Glory is the end point of the process of our salvation. In justification, God declares us righteous. He says you are not going to be punished for the wrong that you do. In glorification, ultimately, God makes us holy and righteous. Verse 30 actually talks about glorification in the past tense as if it's already happened. God has predestined, God has called, God has justified, God has glorified us, is what the text actually says. Now, it's pretty clear, I think, that none of us actually get to be fully glorified in this life. But the reason Romans says that the way it does is to emphasize that this will happen. God will make us glorious in the end. Now, that promise of future glorification is a great promise, but it's hard for us to really get what it means. Often when we talk about our future life, when we talk about glorification, when we talk like what we'll look like when God makes us right, we get sort of this picture of us as human fireflies or human light bulbs, like somehow God is going to make it so that our skin glows and we'll kind of walk around being these sort of fluorescent people. And that's not terribly, terribly exciting, really. And obviously glorification means something much more than that. It's hard to picture. It's hard to give a good image for that. But if you've met someone who is really, really deep in their faith, I think you get a picture of what that glorification looks like. In the Old Testament, the word for glory has this sense of weight, of power, of majesty. If you've ever met somebody who was tremendously important and who carried that well, you get a sense of the glory that's being talked about here. This is a glory kind of like God's. This text tells us that God is actually going to make us, in some small way, people who look like him. So if you've ever talked to somebody or gotten to know a Christian whose prayer life was really, really deep and intense, who you could just see the wisdom coming off of, who was always praying all the time, deeply and powerfully, you've caught a glimpse of the glory that God is bringing us to. When you encounter a Christian who lives to serve other people, who seems like every thought they have, every heartbeat they have, is about making life better for other people, when you see the superhuman reservoirs of love and energy they have, you're catching a glimpse of what it means that God will glorify all of us. When you see someone who's just soaked themselves in the Bible and lives according to it and just knows it, when the Bible just comes out in their conversation and not in any kind of bragging way, but just someone who you can tell has brought God's word into their heart and let it overflow into their lives, that's the kind of glory that God is bringing his people to. Not that someone's skin starts to glow, but that their life evidences this depth, this light, this wonder, this majesty. Now, I think in God's great creativity, every single one of us 
images and reflects God's glory in a little different way. Some of us are especially gifted with certain things. Some of us especially gifted with others. But all of us can look forward to the day when God will bring us fully into his image when every single one of us will be glorious, amazing people who reflect God. Now, as we hear that today, it's hard not to compare ourselves to other people and to be thinking, well, I don't pray as much as that person. I don't serve as well as that other person. How in the world am I ever going to actually look like that? As with a lot of things, there's a call and there's also a comfort there. If you feel like you don't pray enough, pray more. If you wish you were more soaked in the Bible and had it overflowing in your life, read the Bible more. If you feel called to be more a person of service, find ways to serve. There are things we can do to grow toward this glory that God is bringing into our lives. But at the same time, this isn't ultimately a glory that we can earn, that we can achieve on our own, that we go out and we find and we develop in ourselves. This is a glory that God is at work in us to bring about. So if you look at someone else and you say, boy, they're further along on their spiritual journey than I am, well, don't do that. Look toward God. Look toward the pattern of the life of Christ. Do your best to follow that and trust this promise that those whom God has predestined, he's also called, those he's called, he's justified, those who he's justified, he will also glorify. The point of this text ultimately is assurance for us as believers. God is working in all things for our good according to his glorious purpose. And that glorious purpose is to make us glorious people. God's work began in eternity. God's work of saving us will only end when he has made us into perfect, limited but perfect reflections of his glory. That's the hope we live in. That's the promise we have. That's the salvation that God has given us and that he continues to work out in our lives. All glory be to God.